by this, we know that we remain in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son as the Saviour of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God remains in him, and he in God. We know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and he who remains in love remains in God, and God remains in him. In this, love has been made perfect among us, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as he is, even so we are in this world. There is no fear, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear has punishment. He who fears is not made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. If a man says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who doesn't love his brother, whom he has seen, how can he love God, whom he has not seen? This commandment we have from him, that he who loves God should also love his brother. How are y'all doing? Me too. For uh, those of you who don't know me, uh, my name's Brenna Sanchez. I have been coming to this church um, since birth. We both turned 39 this month. <laughs> when I am not here at church, uh, I am, uh, my day job is I am a partner in a law firm. I started at this firm about 12 years ago. When I, so I've been there most of my career. When I started, my partner, who was then just my boss, said um, he, his dream for the firm was a very small firm. Two to three attorneys, max. Long story short, we have three offices over three states and are about to open a fourth office over a fourth state. And then my partner promises me he's done and I pretend to believe him. Uh, if you're curious, we're a personal injury firm. I personally practice wrongful death and so I very much hope to never see any of you in my office. Uh, I am also a partner in a marriage. My husband and I have been married for 16 years. That's my husband, John, and that's our son, Nico. Um, he's 10. Wait, I'm sorry. That's our son, Nikolai. He prefers to be called by his government name. <laughs> I was looking for pictures of the three of us and realized we don't really have any. Uh, so I had to go to my Insta and just kind of cobble together pictures of all of us. And uh, I thought that was because we're just not, we're not really picture-takey people. Um, and then I looked through my phone and realized we are picture-takey people, just not of ourselves. <laughs> this is Shadow. Um, Shadow, her government name is Shadow Facts Galadriel Sanchez. <laughs> She's our one-year-old Rhodesian Ridgeback puppy. She is weighing, let's see, as of Friday, she weighed 96.6 pounds. And she has her own album on our photo stream, just entirely dedicated to her. Anybody can upload at any point. Uh, she is the best and the worst. She's the worst. 
this was in her punk teenage months. If you can't see it very clearly, she has socks on. Those are not fur markings. That is mud. <laughs> Y'all, look at her face. She didn't, she knew what she was doing. She was completely unrepentant. <laughs> so if you ask John and I, what are you guys up to nowadays? It's her. She's what we're up to. <laughs> it takes a lot. Uh, all right, let's jump in. I bet you, before this series, never thought that you could get 15 to 16 sermons out of just the book of 1 John. But here we are in sermon number 13. Uh, we, are, we have rounded third. We are in the home stretch. There is not much of the first book of 1 John left. Um, we will have a few concepts today uh, that will sound familiar from prior sermons because John kind of revolves around a handful of concepts, kind of the whole letter, talking about different issues. And today's concepts in this passage that I've got um, are pretty big ones. <laughs> Abiding, perfection, and love. So let's jump in. Should anyone confess, this is verse 15, should anyone confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. Verse 13, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he is donated to us from his spirit. If you're curious about the translation, this is the David Bentley Hart translation of the New Testament. I recommend it. It's very good. Um, I grew up, though, reading the King James Version, the New King James Version, and so I was really, I had seen growing up this word abide, and I, nobody in my life, like outside of church, used the word abide, and so I had no idea, I didn't know what it meant. You know how when you're young and you don't, you, you encounter a word that you don't know, you just kind of make up a definition for it? That's what I did. I came up with this idea that abide meant like live with, live with God because, you know, the word ab abode is kind of the same and I knew from TV that that meant somewhere where you live. And I'm going to say that that was my understanding of the concept of abide until about three weeks ago when <laughs> I sat down to really write this sermon. Uh, I looked up the usage of the English word abide, it came, its actual meaning is enduring or steadfast. And that meaning arose in sort of late 13th century. It was then used heavily in everyday language in the 1800s. Um, sometimes you see that in, you know, the, if you read literature from that period, you'll see the word abide. Um, and then the usage kind of tapered off after the 1800s. Not a lot of people say it now. Honestly, I think the usage is being kept alive by scriptures that translate this word as abide. <laughs> the more modern translations, we heard Ringo read his translation, and the more modern translations are now translating this word that used to be abide as remain. But remain has kind of always just meant continue, like just continue. And it didn't talk about, there was no part of the concept about the manner of continuing or the quality of continuing. And you can do a lot of, you continue begrudgingly, you can continue 
um, you know, joyfully. There's lots of ways that you can just continue doing something. So I think English is failing us a little bit because we don't use the word abide anymore and the word remain is not quite enough. So let's go to the Greek. The Greek here for the word that is translated abide, that is translated remain is meno. This has been mentioned in past sermons because the word abide has come up. And um, if you are, if you are like, hey, Brenna, you didn't use any diacritical marks in typing the Greek, I don't know how to type them. And so um, don't at me. <laughs> but what meno means is, is so much more than just continue, so much more than just endure or be steadfast. Meno means to tarry, to continue to be present, to be held or kept continually and to remain as one, to not become another or different, to keep your condition as one with something. I, my favorite translation of this, where I feel like it really hits the nail on the head of what meno means, is actually a Spanish translation. Sabemos que estamos íntimamente unidos a Dios. Porque él nos ha dado su espíritu. We know that we are intimately united with God because he has given us his spirit. Intimately united. Not living alongside of, not checking in with every now and then. We're not Facebook friends. We're intimately united. The word that I'm going to use for that is oneness. We have a oneness with God. We have access to that oneness by the confession of our faith. He says, should anyone confess that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. You have oneness with God. If you don't make that confession, you don't have that oneness. You remain outside of that intimate unity. You remain beloved, absolutely, but without the confession of Christ, you remain out of unity with God. And so you're missing out on the full partnership and the full personhood of everything he is. Our confession of faith is access and the Holy Spirit is given to us as proof of the abiding that we are doing with God, of the oneness with God, the spirit is the proof. And the spirit is given, it is not earned. And so there's no striving in this. This is not a, a benchmark that you have to live up to. Oh God, I'm not abiding in you enough. The spirit is given to us and all we do is confess our faith for the access. In this scripture, John is not saying, make sure you're abiding. God is, excuse me, John, not God. John is encouraging us to remember the oneness that we already have by the confession of our faith. Verse 16, and we, we have come to know and have faith in the love God has in us. God is love. 
and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. I don't know if the Apostle John knew what the transitive property in mathematics was, but that's what he's doing here. God is love. So if we are abiding in love, we are abiding in God. If X equals Y and Y equals Z, then X equals Z. That's the transitive property in math. So if we apply that transitive property in other areas of scripture, then God is patient, God is kind, he isn't jealous, he doesn't brag, he isn't arrogant, he isn't rude, he doesn't seek his own advantage, he isn't irritable, he doesn't keep a record of complaints, hallelujah. He isn't happy with injustice, he is happy with the truth, he bears all things, he trusts, hopes, and endures all things, and he never fails. And if we are one with him, then we have to be one with love, by, just because of, that's who he is, which means we also have to display these attributes. And uh, that's, uh, that's a lot <laughs> for our puny mortal selves. And uh, I agree, yeah, that's a lot. Um, but I've got good news. Hereby love has been made perfect in us so that we might have confidence on the day of judgment that just as he is, just as God is, so also are we in this cosmos, in this world. In love there is no fear. Rather, the love that is perfect casts out fear. Because fear carries chastisement. Another translation says, fear expects punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. I'm going to change concepts from abiding to the idea of perfection. But I want to remind everybody that John, the Apostle John, is not changing concepts here. This whole section is one thought. So we have to remember, hereby love has been made perfect means the process of abiding in him is how love has been made perfect in us. So everything we just talked about with abiding, it needs to inform our understanding of what's meant by perfect love. Abiding is the oneness with God, and that abiding is how love is made perfect within us. Nowadays, perfect is a loaded concept. I have dealt with perfectionism in my own life. If you had asked me any time before October of last year if I was a perfectionist, I would say absolutely not. I don't, it doesn't matter if other people measure up to some weird, like arbitrary standard that I set. And then my therapist asked me, what about you? Do you need to measure up to an arbitrary standard you've set? And I said, shh. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of people who deal with perfectionist tendencies, they have uh, what's called an inner critic. And I always told myself, um, I don't have an inner critic. And then I realized that my whole life I had been trying to do everything flawlessly so that my inner critic never had anything to say. And that, my friends, 
is an impossible way to live. You cannot live as the superhero version of yourself every day. Because our modern day idea of what perfect means is the standard of excellence, the best of the best. And that concept didn't really emerge, didn't really emerge in the meaning of perfect until, when was it? The 13th century, early 13th century, we see the idea that perfection means a degree of excellence that leaves nothing to be desired. In this 14th century, we see additional meaning added of flawlessness, correctness, and purity. All of these things are perfect. And so towards the 1570s, we start to see the, the idea that perfection is an inherent value in something. Something inherently is perfect, flawless, pure. But perfection was not understood in the ancient world the way we understand it today. Hallelujah. Let's go back to the Greek. The word used that is translated as perfect in most translations is teleos. There, uh, the teleos doesn't mean the standard of excellence. Teleos means wholeness and completeness, but not inherently to a thing. Wholeness and completeness at the end of a process. That's perfect. It's used elsewhere in other forms. My grace is sufficient for you. My strength has been made perfect in weakness. In this scripture, God is not delighting in our weakness. God is not telling us to be weak. What he is saying is that when we are weak, his strength can finish the work. His strength is perfect in our weakness when we get out of the way. And speaking of finishing the work, Jesus uses the same word. Can y'all not see that? Okay, sorry. It's different on the back screen. <laughs> Jesus said it is finished on the cross. Same word. And I marvel. I marvel every time I think about Jesus saying it is finished, saying it is perfect, saying it is complete. At the beginning of everything, literally the beginning of everything. He is dying on the cross to begin the new covenant in his blood and through his sacrifice. And he says, we're done. The work is finished. The end is written. That's why I started crying during worship. The work is finished. The end is written. Jesus Christ, our living hope. It's a great lyric. Teleos is also used um, in the Septuagint. So there are the first five books of the Bible. Those are written in Hebrew. And then ancient scholars rewrote them into Greek, and that's called the Septuagint. And teleos is used as the Greek version of shalom. Shalom means many different things in Hebrew. One of the things that shalom means is peace. I think we're the most familiar with shalom meaning peace. The Greek word for that is irene. But shalom also means, the concept of shalom is this nothing missing, nothing broken, whole, complete, unbroken, undivided. And when that meaning comes up in the Hebrew, teleos is used, perfect is used. 
So if you have ever thought about this verse, that perfect love casts out fear, and if you fear, then you have not been made perfect in love. You need to understand, or if you've ever thought about this verse and you said, oh, I fear all the time. I am always afraid. My fear often dresses up as anxiety. and calls itself anxiety. Um, I'm afraid all the time. You need to understand that you have not failed to love perfectly. You're just not done yet. Because love and fear are like light and darkness. They literally can't exist at the same time in the same space. The Spanish translation says, donde hay amor, no hay temor. Where there is love, there is no fear. So this verse is not about our own puny ability to love. This verse is saying that where God is, fear has to leave. So we abide in God, we have oneness with God, and let the love that is perfect, the love that is finished, his love, because God is love, complete the work within us. John points out in both of these, uh, these verses, I'm gonna pull them back up real quick. John points out in both of these verses, he talks about judgment, and he talks about punishment. And his point is, because of this love, because of this love that is perfect, we don't have to fear a looming judgment day. We don't have to expect punishment for our sins. Romans 5, 9 through 10. Now that we have been made righteous by the blood, we can be even more certain that we will be saved from God's wrath through him. If we were reconciled to God through the death of his son while we were still enemies, now that we have been reconciled, how much more certain is it that we will be saved by his life? No one needs to fear punishment who believes because we're not engaged in some cosmic balancing tests between good and evil. What this is, what we believe, is the victory of love over death. And we have to preach it that way. We have to preach it as the victory of love over death so that those who are already reconciled, enemies who are already reconciled, can come to a full understanding of the oneness that they have with perfect love. Jesus saved us all. And so any us versus them rhetoric church versus the world, believer versus non-believer, Republican versus Democrat, is completely antithetical to the gospel. The gospel is meant to be good news about the Zoe life available now to those who have already been restored by the blood. The gospel is not meant to be preached as insurance against hell. A friend of mine asked me, we were having a philosophical discussion, and he asked me, if there were no hell, 
what would be the benefit of being a Christian? And I immediately answered him, Jesus. Jesus is the benefit. Jesus is the benefit to being a Christian. Having access through the Spirit to this meno oneness and through meno to this teleos wholeness and completeness of love within us. That's why we confess that He's the Son of God. For Him, for love Himself. Verse 20. Let's talk about love. If anyone should say, I love God, love God, and hate his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother, who he has seen, cannot love the God who he has not seen. We like to negotiate with this scripture, don't we? We say, surely didn't. Jesus didn't mean like this type of person, right? Like this particular type of person. Like Jesus didn't mean Hitler. Jesus didn't mean this politician. Jesus didn't mean that criminal. Jesus didn't mean that. Because we only want to love the people that we think are deserving of love. But we, human children, are not the judge. We are followers of Christ. And if his sheep hear his voice, then we must obey the command to love, which is completely unconditional. Jesus gave us no predicate or criteria on who to apply it to or how to do it. He said, love others. Which means the command applies to the horrible people too. In fact, Jesus specifically said it applied to them when he said, love your enemies. Which feels impossible. But I have good news. We love because he first loved us. The command in John 13, 34 is love each other just as I have loved you, so you also must love each other. And I think um, we, we often misinterpret this one too. We say, I will fulfill this command. This command means that I will love others because Jesus loves them. Or we say, I will love them to prove I love Jesus, because I love Jesus, I'm going to love other people. And Jesus didn't say, love people because I love people. And Jesus didn't say, love people to prove that you love me. Jesus said, love people because I love you. Love people because you are loved. Love people is the work of love on earth as an overflow of the love that is freely given to you by and through Jesus. This is a branch and vine issue. He is the source of our love. He is the reason we are able to love at all. We love because he first loved us. If you are trying to white knuckle loving someone, we've all done it because you have told yourself that it is the Jesus-y thing to do. 
then you are trying to reverse engineer something that should be as available to you as the breath in your lungs if you are abiding in the vine. We have to remember that love is a fruit. It grows. It's not manufactured. Jesus' command to love others is fulfilled, perfected, as the natural process, fruit-bearing, of our being loved by God. We don't have to work for it. He has simply loved us so lavishly that if we abide in that love, we cannot fail to bear its fruit. But if you don't know how beloved you are, if you think that you are disqualified from his love, if you cannot feel his love because of the terrible things that have happened to you or around you in your life, then it is time to learn how to receive his love. And I think step one for that is recognizing it when you see it. So what does God's love look like? I sent a uh, mass text to all of my friends a few weeks ago. Most of them answered. Um, this was the text. Can you give me an example of a time in your life when something happened that confirmed for you that God loved you. And I, I got a lot of different answers, but the first answers I got pretty much across the board were this. Oh, wow. Um, just, just one? Um, I don't think I've ever thought about that before. And then when I assured all of my friends, it's not like there's a wrong answer, right? Just, what comes to mind when I ask you this question? Tell me that. Got a bunch of different answers. I saw God's love became clear to me when I became a father. God's love was demonstrated to me when he orchestrated an encounter with someone, and that encounter changed the trajectory of my life. I see God's love and the promises that he makes and then fulfills. I see, I know God's love because when I seek him in prayer, he meets me there. I have known God's love and protection and peace when enemies came after me at work, convincing me that his love is better than any one person's opinion of me. This one's mine. I personally have seen God's love in the terrible things that have happened to me and around me my whole life. That story of the three Hebrew children in the fire and Jesus in the fire with them. And when they walked out, they didn't smell like smoke. That has been how I have seen God's love in my life, that I do not smell like smoke. 
another friend said, uh, I had chosen my course. I chose my course because that is what I thought was best. And then God said, no, 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 no. <laughs> and he corrected what I thought was best to what he knew was best. Another friend said, we trusted for a child. And then we conceived. My buddy, Dan, uh, he came up a few weeks ago when Zach was preaching. He told you guys his, a little bit about his story. He left out my favorite part, so I'm going to tell you guys. Dan died of, uh, he had a problem with his heart, died of a heart attack. Uh, is now still with us, not, he didn't stay dead. And one night at Home Life, I'm not sure what we had been talking about, but we asked Dan, I think someone had said, well, we don't know what happens after death. And I looked at Dan and I said, what happens? <laughs> I put him on the spot, but he had an answer. Uh, a lot of times when we hear stories of people who have come back from the dead, one of the things that you hear pretty often is something about a white light. We've all heard the joke like, don't go towards the light. Dan said he was sinking and he saw a light and the light got bigger, not because he was moving towards it, but because it was moving towards him. And then he woke up. The light came down to get him. And you cannot convince me that that's not what everybody is seeing who has come back from death. Oh, sorry. So that's, that's Dan's story of God's love. Sorry. <laughs> um, another one, my sister Shauna, my brother's wife, sent me her whole story. I know her whole story, right? <laughs> because she's my sister. But she has seen miracle after miracle in her children. My, uh, her oldest son, Josh, didn't breathe for the first 30 seconds of his life. Finally breathed, but suffered, uh, it's called uh, hmm, hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy. He's perfectly fine. He has uh, just some motor function issues with his speech. That's it. But that could have gone a completely different way. If you Google hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy, there's lots of ways that that could have gone. My baby nephew, Zeke, um, was another NICU baby, and uh, they had to put him on a breathing machine. That breathing machine blew out one of his lungs, and lungs are spongy, but he was barely there a few, maybe overnight in the NICU, breathing on his own. Everything was good. And then here just recently, this one's gonna make me cry again. All right, but their middle child, Eli. Eli is eight. They went on a tour of the national parks this summer. And they were in Yosemite, I think it was. And they were climbing the side of a waterfall, very big waterfall. And before they started the climb, Shauna said, she said just really quick prayer of just protection. We're about to go climb this mountain, basically, just be with us. 
Eli about, I think it was maybe halfway up, Eli slipped and Eli fell 12 feet until he struck his back on an outcropping and then fell 10 more feet into the pool at the bottom of the, of the waterfall. Imagine the things going through a mother's mind. He's not gonna be able to walk, he might be gone. She got down to the base of the waterfall and Eli was walking out of the pool and he said, I'm cold. And I wanted to address something. Because a lot of these stories that I got from my friends and family, they kind of see God's love after the fact. They see it in hindsight. Hindsight is the clearest way to see something. We always say that, right? Hindsight is 2020. But don't tell yourself that because you see it after the fact, because you see his love in hindsight, that you're just seeing what you want to see. Because seeing something in hindsight is not the same thing as confirmation bias. Confirmation bias is something we deal with um, when I'm picking a jury. There may be people in my jury pool who already have an idea of what they think about personal injury cases. They've seen the commercials, they have views. And if those people end up on my jury, if I can't figure that out and eliminate them because of their bias, they will engage in something called confirmation bias. I have an idea of what this thing means and no matter what evidence you put in front of me, it's just going to support what I already think is true. So that's not the same thing as seeing something in hindsight. You're not just seeing what you want to see. In Acts 3, Peter and John heal a famously crippled man. You guys are gonna get a lot of time back today. They heal a famously crippled man. Everybody knew that this guy was crippled. He'd been crippled his whole life. Everybody in town knew him. They heal him in the name of Jesus. Get up, take your mat, and walk. In Acts 4, the priests confront them, and they ask, by what power were you able to heal this man? Because they're ready for a fight. They're ready for a fight. And Peter and John say, we, we, it was Jesus. Let us tell you the good news. They tell him the good news. And the priests wanted so bad to argue. But they could not deny that a man had been healed. Because you know a miracle when you see it. Whether it's in front of you or in hindsight. God demonstrates his love to us through his faithfulness. He is there when you need him. He is there when you don't see him. Because he's a good father. And whatever your earth family looks like, or looked like, you are the beloved, priceless child 
of a father who gave literally everything he had so that you could know him. God shows his love for us because while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And I am convinced that nothing can separate us from God's love in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Not death or life, not angels or rulers, not present things or future things. Talking to you, anxiety. Not powers or heights or depth or any other thing that is created. And this hope doesn't put us to shame because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Abiding in perfect love requires from us a willingness to receive, to be while also doing, to tap into the Zoe life of heaven while working through our psyche lives on earth, to embrace the tension between already and not yet. We don't believe as a form of afterlife insurance. We don't follow because we expect some kind of reward. We love because we are loved. Could the prayer partners join us? Ooh. All right, here we go again. Will y'all stand with us while we pray? And pray this with me. King of love and Prince of peace, we stand today with gratitude for the love you have lavished upon us in the form of Christ Jesus and the gift of your spirit. Open our eyes to see the demonstrations of your love this week. May your spirit remind us of the intimate unity we have with you. And may we rejoice in the process of perfection that you have already accomplished. In Jesus' name, amen. If you need prayer, come see these wonderful people. And uh, y'all have so much time to get to lunch. <laughs> You're dismissed.